0: Last week we began to study the Corinthian episode in Acts 18. You guys can turn right over there if you want. Acts 18. Acts chapter 18. I divided the Corinthian episode into five teachable sections, if you recall. Number one was Paul's visit in labor, verses 1 to 5. Number two was the Jewish opposition, verse 6. Number three was Paul... Goes to the Gentiles, verses 7 through 8. Four, the Lord's encouragement to Paul, verses 9 through 11. And then five, lastly, was the tribunal, verses 12 through 17. We made it last week to uh, number four. And in that section, we learned that Paul had become discouraged because of the Jewish opposition that he encountered in Corinth, more particularly at the synagogue. I remember, we studied it together, and if you go back and look at it, the first 10 verses or so of, of uh, Acts 18, you know, he, he was reviled and, and rebuffed and, and just rejected at the synagogue. And uh, it, it just, it had a pretty good effect on him. he became become discouraged and fearful, and uh, which is kind of, up to this point in the Acts narrative, sort of abnormal for Paul, right? He's just been, go, 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 and he's already been persecuted and been driven out of towns and cities and synagogues, and, and it just kept going and going and going nonstop, never even looked to the left or right, and then here we get to this wonderful passage and we see that he was filled with discouragement and fear and these sorts of things. Being aware of his plight, being aware of his, his heart, his concern, his fear, the Lord Jesus visited and encouraged Paul during a nighttime vision, probably in a dream. In the dream vision, the Lord issued two exhortations and three promises We looked at the two exhortations and one of the promises, that's where we've gotten so far. You might recall exhortation one, do not be afraid, that was verse nine, exhortation two, keep preaching the gospel, okay, I know you're in fear of those who are listening to you and those who are rebuking you and rejecting you, but don't stop preaching the gospel, is how Jesus exhorted him. We saw that in verse nine, and then we saw a promise, why should you not have fear? Why should you preach, keep, uh, keep preaching the gospel? Because of this promise in verse 10, for I am with you. Okay, you don't have to be afraid, and you don't have to get rid of your ministry. Why? Because I'm with you. And that's where we left off. And if you weren't with us, I would encourage you to go back and listen. Maybe this sermon will make more sense. The Holy Spirit will speak to you through that last sermon as well. Let's pray and pick up at the second promise. Father, open our hearts and minds to the truth. Be with us. We don't typically like the truth or want to obey the truth or enjoy the truth, it is opposed to our flesh. May the spirit, the very spirit of God prevail here today against our flesh. Speak the truth to us. May we believe it. May we obey it. May we live it. May we preach it. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Promise two, the Lord, we didn't get to this one, but here's the second promise. The Lord... Jesus promised Paul protection. Middle of verse 10, right? The first promise is I'll be with you. The second promise is protection. You can keep preaching the gospel because I'm with you and I will protect you. We see this in the middle of verse 10. That's pretty much where we left off. And it says, and no one will attack you to harm you. This is what Jesus said to Paul in this vision Opposition in Corinth may have been very high, but the Lord knew that no one was going to put their hands on Paul. The Lord chose to share this sovereign insight with him to help put his heart at ease so that he could focus on the task of preaching the gospel. Paul may have reflected at this point or maybe the next morning on Isaiah 54:17 which is a phenomenal passage that talks about the protection of the Lord. It says, "No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication from me declares the Lord." I love that passage. Every one of us should memorize that passage. When the world turns in on us, it's threatening us because we're about the gospel, that we proclaim the gospel, that's who we are, that's our message, and the world turns against us. Remember Isaiah 54:17: "Nothing shall prevail against us. That is the Lord's promise to Paul that is the lord's promise as the text says in 54:17 to every servant of the lord so he promised his presence and he promised protection and then promise 3 this one's phenomenally interesting and a bit mysterious jesus in the vision promised paul more conversions The end of verse 10, Jesus says this to Paul, for I have many in this city who are my people. What people was the Lord Jesus referring to here? Were there already a bunch of Christians somewhere in Corinth hidden away? Like on the west side? No. The Lord was referring to the Jews and Gentiles who would be converted in the course of Paul's continuing ministry in the city. This statement has to do with foreknowledge and predestination. God already knew who was going who he was going to save in the city because he had pre-planned in eternity past to save them. He knew who they were by name, every hair on their head already. Paul has no clue as to who they are. It's like Jesus is saying, hey, I got people out there that are gonna repent and believe the gospel. Now Paul must have been thinking, what? This is incredible. The most Indisputable passage in the Bible on the subject of sovereign election and predestination would obviously be Romans eight twenty-eight through thirty. Paul wrote this after Corinth, after the vision, after experiencing all that he had experienced and watching God call His people out of darkness into this wonderful light through His missionary journeys. Paul writes this in Romans eight twenty-eight to thirty, and we know that for those who God, uh, who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purposes. Man, that's our favorite verse for many of us. 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Okay, see, what we're seeing in the text here is an actual case where the Lord Jesus is about to call people who don't even know it yet to be his bride through sovereign power. And those whom he predestined, he also called. We're about to see that. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The people whom the Lord called his own at the end of verse 10 were those who would repent, believe the gospel, and be baptized during the ministry of Paul. God foreordained and predestined for this to take place. It's amazing, and it's mysterious, is it not? And isn't it a bit difficult to comprehend for these finite minds who wrestle with the sovereignty of God? It's understandable that we would do that. I do it all the time. It is amazing, it is mysterious, and it is a a bit difficult to comprehend, but it's true. It's true. It's true. It's what our Bibles teach, not just in Romans 8, but everywhere. If we were to paraphrase Jesus' statement... It would sound something like this. Paul, Paul, keep preaching the gospel because people are going to get saved. You think it's ending. You think that because they're rebuffing you and rebuking you and reviling you and slandering you and because they hate you, you think that your time here is coming to an end or that you need to divert and go somewhere else. I tell you, no, people are going to get saved. Why? Because I'm going to save them. Keep going, Paul. Keep preaching, Paul. Be without fear, Paul, for I am with you. I will protect you, and you will see fruit in your ministry. Keep doing what I've called you to do. Don't look to the left or right. Don't quit. Don't stop. Don't capitulate. Don't backpedal. Keep preaching the gospel. Look at what Paul did after he received this amazing, encouraging vision. This nighttime vision where the Lord exhorted him and made these promises to him. Look at verse 11. It says, And he did not believe the Lord and took off and ran for Philippi. You see that? Oh, wait a minute. That's not what it says. It says, and he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Paul didn't give up. He kept going. He kept preaching Jesus in Corinth for 18 months, almost two years. Wow. It's because of experiences like these that Paul was able to write uh, many of the more memorable verses in his epistles, Romans 8, 28. And we know for those who love God, all things work together for good. This is probably some of your life verse. Your, this is your life verse. I love it. For those who are called according to his purpose, this came true for Paul right here in this instance, did it not? Ephesians six ten: 10, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might you ever wonder why Paul wrote these things in the epistles? Either during his missionary journeys or right after? Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Was he not strengthened through this vision? Philippians 4:13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You see Paul didn't just write these things in some vacuum or some vacuous idea or these were some philosophical concepts. He lived this stuff. He experienced it firsthand. That's why he wrote what he wrote. 2 Thessalonians 3:3, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. That is precisely, precisely, precisely what the Lord did in Corinth. See, these are living things. Examples. These verses are living. Paul lived them and the Holy Spirit penned them through him, sharing his experience and yet it being the holy word of God. Let's move to our last section the tribunal. Verses 12 through 17. But when Gallio, hey Gallio! Was proconsul of Achaia. The Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, <laughs> Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O oh Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it, since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves, I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. While Paul was busy with his... Expanding ministry, his growing ministry. He's preaching the gospel and God is saving Corinthians. The Jews united and conspired to make a final death blow. Okay, these are the synagogue Jews. They conspired and came together to make a final sort of death blow attack against him. Okay, everything that we've tried so far has not worked. Let's try this. Their plan was to drag Paul before Gallio at the Corinthian tribunal or high court to make false accusations against him in order to have him either imprisoned or executed. Most of all, to have him shut up, maybe driven from the city. The head of the tribunal was a man named Gallio. Gallio was a Roman senator and the highest ranking court official in the province of Achaia. He was the proconsul. Galio was also the brother of the famed Roman philosopher Seneca. Seneca described Gallio as an intelligent person who hated flattery and was blessed with an unaffectedly pleasant personality. Interestingly, Seneca, Gallio's brother, tutored and advised Nero who served as the Roman emperor from 54 A.D. to 68 A.D. and many of us are aware of the fact that Nero became the most ferocious and brutal persecutor of the Christian church in the first century. During his 14-year reign of terror, historians estimate that he murdered 100,000 Christians. Nero had Paul beheaded, Later on, and Peter and Peter's wife crucified. He was brutal. Galileo and the tribunal convened at this place called the judgment seat, which was a large raised stone platform that stood in the Agra shopping center in front of the residence of the proconsul. This is where cases were listened to and decided. Paul likened this place to the future Bema seat or judgment seat of Christ where every believer will give an account of the good and bad they did during their faith journey. We see that in 2 Corinthians 5.10. The Jews were being very strategic here in what they were attempting to do. They hoped for a favorable verdict from Gallio, which could then be cited as a precedent in other cities under his jurisdiction If Galileo ruled against Paul in Corinth, then the gospel would have to be outlawed everywhere else in Achaia, especially Athens. And if that happened, then we would have to say bye-bye to the Athenian church that he just planted. There was a strategy here in bringing Paul before the highest court and by bringing these accusations. They wanted him silenced in Corinth, Athens, and everywhere else he would go. When they brought Paul before Gallio, they said this, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. What law were they referring to? The Roman law? No. The Jews did not worship God according to Roman law. Worshiping, you know, to worship according to Roman law meant worshiping the emperor and all the other Roman gods. The Jews would never do that. They were referring to the Jewish law. Now Judaism was tolerated throughout the Roman Empire at this point. The Romans viewed Christianity as nothing more than a sect of Judaism. The Jews, however, argued that Paul's teachings were contrary to their religious law and should not be tolerated by the Romans. This is their exact argument. Look, you've given us the authority to worship and do our thing in our way, and you think that this guy is a part of our group. He really isn't, and so you should not tolerate what he... Since you tolerate what we do, you should not tolerate what he's doing. You should silence him. You should stop him. That's their argument. In this court, Paul had the right to make a defense, and just as he was about to do so, Gallio. Interrupted and said, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to judge, to be the judge of these things. Gallio basically said, If if this person who, who you've brought before me had broken Roman laws, I would have reason to accept your complaint. I'd do something about it. But since it has to do with your religion, it's up to you to resolve the problem. I'm not going to be a part of this. You might say that Galileo completely shot down the Jews' entire strategy here with these words. Not only did he verbally refute them, but then he actually physically kicked them out of the tribunal. No, and get out. He had guards drive them away. And this made them very, very angry. They had become very mad. As a last-ditch effort to vent their anger and exact some kind of retribution, they seized a guy named Sosthenes and began to beat him. Luke described him as the ruler of the synagogue or of a synagogue. Sosthenes may have been another converted synagogue ruler like Crispus, and that's why they seized him and beat him up. He may have been there to support Paul. Or he may have been the lead conspirator against Paul, and when his case fell apart before the tribunal, his partners turned against him. That's also an idea and a thought here by scholars. Paul, however, did mention a believer named Sosthenes in 1 Corinthians 1.1. So the first explanation seems to be most accurate. Sosthenes, Sosthenes was just a, a convert. He believed in Jesus Christ and he was a ruler of a synagogue like Crispus and turned to the Lord and probably began to preach Jesus. And boy, when the Jews took a look, one look at one of their own that had been converted... They just grabbed this guy and started to beat him mercilessly. As they were beating Sosthenes, Gallio turned his attention away from them. <laughs> really stinks to get a beat down and people just look away. He was not interested in their religious matters or their justice or any of those sorts of things at this point. Now Luke concludes the Corinthian episode in verse 18 After this, it says, verse 18, 18, 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila, matching names. And this is a weird one here. At Sancrii, is how it's pronounced, Sancrii. Looks like Centuria. Sancrii, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. Now, After the tribunal, Paul continued to preach the gospel and build up the church in Corinth. As I said earlier, the total time he spent in the city, according to that last verse that we read a moment ago, was 18 months. He was there for almost two years. Paul desired to return to his home church in Syrian Antioch. That's his sending church. He had left there a while ago. And he asked Priscilla and Aquila to accompany him. They made their way to the eastern Corinthian port of Sancreae to locate and board a boat to Syria. Before Paul embarked on the ship, he had his hair cut because he had made a vow. Now, the question becomes, was this a, what kind of vow was this? Was this a, a Nazarite vow according to Numbers 6 1 through 20? Most scholars assume so. If this is correct, Paul had asked God for some kind of intervention, promising something in return, save me from this and I'll do this. Have you ever done that? Huh? I don't do that as a believer anymore. I don't know why, but when I was an unbeliever, I did that all the time. I'd look at the sky, I'm about to get annihilated, help me if you're up there, and if you do, I'll never drink again. Very short-lived vows I made back in those days because I would be drinking the next Saturday or Friday. And then God would be going, remember, that's why you're puking again. Save me again. So Paul, if this was a Nazarite vow, he would have been seeking some sort of intervention and then some sort of action from God and then promising something in return. Assuming that Paul fulfilled the requirements set out in Numbers 6, 2 through 8, for the duration of the Nazarite vow, he would have not partaken of any intoxicating drink. These are the parts of the Nazarite vow. You don't drink any booze. You don't cut your hair. And you definitely do not defile yourself by touching anything that is dead. And I, that's just weird. Like, you know, if you weren't under the Nazarite vow, you saw a dead squirrel. <laughs> you know? Apparently, when you were under the Nazarite vow, you couldn't, you know, if you, had, if you went to a funeral or something of that nature, you could not come in contact with that dead loved one or what have you, but you could not touch anything that was dead, thus you would be defiled. So you couldn't drink, you couldn't cut your hair, and you couldn't come in contact with anything dead. The reference to having his hair cut can be understood either in terms of Paul's final haircut before the vow took effect, or in terms of his near completion of the vow. To complete the vow, Paul would have to travel to Jerusalem to burn his hair on the altar at the temple. It's part of it if you read that Leviticus passage. Now, I suspect that Paul might have made the Nazarite vow to the Lord the night he received the vision, if that's indeed what he did in terms of it being Nazarite. Again, in the vision, the Lord promised to be with him, to protect him to give him ministry success, these sorts of things. Paul may have responded by thanking the Lord and vowing to sacrifice himself in a sense according to the Nazarite way for the appointed period of time which was about 30 days, no less than 30 days. This was very, a very common thing for Jews to do and Paul was a Christian but he was Jewish by descent. He still followed the law. He still did some of those things that they did. This explanation seems to best fit the context, but since Luke left out the details, we cannot be certain. After stopping off at Supercuts, they boarded a boat and set sail. Look at verses 19 through 20. It says, And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. There's nothing like preaching with a fresh haircut. Verse 20, that was dumb. Verse 20, when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. Okay, so they, they sailed. They got on a boat after he got his haircut, and they sailed due east across the Aegean Sea and came to the port of Ephesus, which was in or is in Asia Minor. Now he's in a different place, a completely different place. He's left um, Achaia, if you will. He's now in Asia Minor. While there, Paul entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day as was his custom, right? This is what he normally did when he went into a new city. He found the synagogue and he went in on the following Sabbath. And while there he reasoned with the Jews, and what would he have reasoned with them? The same thing that he reasoned everywhere else, that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, in this particular place, he was well-received. When they, I mean, he was well-received, and we see that there because they asked him to stay for a longer period. Okay, they didn't say, get out of here. Let's take him before the tribunal. They asked him to stay, but he declined. Why? Because he had something else to take care of. He asked Priscilla and Aquila to remain and continue in the gospel. They stayed. They accepted and stayed. Look at verses 21 through 22. But on taking leave of them... He said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus when he had landed at Caesarea. He went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. Paul told the Ephesians, if God wills it, I'll come back. After making this God-only-can-make-it-happen sort of vow, he... uh, set sail, went all the way back over across the Mediterranean to Palestine and landed at Caesarea. From Caesarea he made his way 50 miles southeast to Jerusalem where he visited the Jerusalem church. Now visiting the church was was not his only reason for going back to Jerusalem. He didn't go there just to to give an account or an update to the other apostles who were based there. That's not the only reason why he went. He also went to Jerusalem for the purpose of completing the final step of his vow, which was to offer his freshly cut hair, if you will, on the altar at the temple. And this is what he did. Why? Because it was required, and Paul took his vows seriously. He agreed with Deuteronomy 23, 21, and Ecclesiastes 5, 4 to 6. Deuteronomy 23, 21, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. If you delay it or don't do it, you're in sin. Meaning, if Paul had not followed through with this vow that was just mentioned, he would have been in sin. Ecclesiastes 5, 4 to 6. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let your mouth not lead you into sin. Paul obviously agreed with these passages with the word and will of God. If I say before God I'm going to do something, I must therefore do it. First, because I don't want to be in sin. Second, I don't want to rob God of his glory in any sense. I don't want to do something against my father whom I vowed to glorify and to worship and to praise and to obey might say that Paul was a man of his word. He kept his promises. Kept his vows. He was faithful. And God blessed him because of this. After visiting the church and completing his vows at the temple he traveled north to his home, Sending Church in Syrian Antioch, where he gave a report and fellowshiped with the believers. What might that of conversation sounded like? Oh, you guys wouldn't believe what I've seen and what I've seen God do. You wouldn't believe how our own brothers, our own Jewish brothers, treated me again. They just... Don't seem to get it. I pray for them. I minister to them. Heck, back in Corinth, I got a little ticked off at them and said, I'm going to the Gentiles. What rejoicing must have taken place in that setting? Sharing. You know how important it is to share the wonderful things that God does with one another? That's a a true encouragement, isn't it? How often do we do that? How often do we, do we stop in the midst of all that's happening and say, let me tell you a little bit about what God's been doing. Let me tell you what he's been doing in my life. Let me tell you what I, he's been doing at RHC. Let me tell you about what he's been doing in the lives of my family members, in the life of my daughter, my new son-in-law. I tell you, I was a part of that ceremony and reception yesterday, and it was just fantastic. I I was able to stand before many, many people whom I do not know and say, I have no doubt that these people love Jesus. I've seen the Lord at work in their lives. I have no doubt that they love one another and want to honor Christ with their marriage. See, that was a little testimony as to the goodness of God in the lives of Kelly and Tina. How often do we share these things? How often do we, you know what we typically share? Ah, life is hell. It's so hard. I can't do this, I can't do that. You know, that's understandable that we would share those things with our brothers and sisters, that we would seek their prayers and encouragement, right? But how often do we just stop and say, you know what the Lord's been doing? You know how good he's been to me and to my family? How good he's been to this world and his providence, and the whole world hates him. How often do we make small talk of the big things that God is doing? Not often enough. You see, we're by default pessimists and negative. We're sinners. And we typically focus on the sin and the despair and, and the hopelessness. These things while we have a good God who is doing you realize whatever you see God doing is less than a million percent of what he's actually doing in the world <laughs> now just let that sink in for a moment the good cool amazing God only things that you see taking place in your own life are so minuscule in relation to all that he's doing throughout the universe. Man. We can learn from this going back to the home church and, and sharing and fellowshipping and saying, here's what I experienced and here's what I saw God doing. You know, I don't take Paul to be the kind of guy who spent, you know, if he spent two hours talking, I doubt he spent an hour and 50 minutes talking about all the bad. I'm pretty confident that he spent an hour and 55 minutes talking about this glorious God whom they love and follow and all that he was doing. And he probably spent maybe less than five minutes saying, those darn Jews. But with some of us, it's the opposite, right? It's an hour and 55 minutes of, ah, and then five minutes, but he's good. Now this concludes, this is a, look at me, I'm a pessimist. This is a sad moment. This text concludes his second journey. It's just ended. We've been looking at it for months. We looked at the first journey for months. His second journey just ended. It concludes his second journey, Lord willing, we will begin to study his third journey in the weeks to come And it actually covers more text, I believe, than the other accounts for the other journeys. It covers four whole chapters, from 1823 to 2221. You need to plan to join us, mark your calendars, make it a real point to be here. I do have several questions and thoughts for us. First, I would say what I've already said. Paul was a faithful man. He was a man of his word who kept his promises. That's a point that this text brings out. There's a reason why Luke puts that here. He wants us to see the faithfulness. And he wants us to be exhorted and encouraged by it. So the question to us would be, are you a faithful man or woman who keeps your word and keeps your promises? Is that who you are? We all know and understand that this has become an incredibly rare thing in this day. It's tough to find people who follow through. It's tough to find people who who meet their obligations, who fulfill their vows, who are faithful. I believe as we get closer to the end of time, and the Lord's return, we're going to see it even more exponential in that people are just doing their own thing and they don't care about their word and they don't care about their responsibilities. This is a pretty common thing today. It's tough to find people follow through. People are always saying one thing right? This but doing that you see that in your own circle of friends and family and community maybe in your own life you say this but you do that you don't follow through. We should evaluate ourselves. You know, the Bible exhorts us to test our faith. We should always be testing our faith. We should always be testing ourselves and evaluating ourselves to see where we're at. You know, it's easier just to slip and then just to not think about those things and to keep slipping and slipping and slipping and sliding and sliding and, and into more and more sin, more unfaithfulness. It's pretty easy for us to do that. And so that's why the Bible exhorts us to test our faith, to test ourselves, to evaluate ourselves. And I would say very regularly, I would say every day. You may not have to ask yourself, am I saved every day? But you might ask yourself, am I acting like a saved person? That's what I ask myself. And so often the answer is yes, and so often the answer is not really not today we should evaluate ourselves have we been faithful do we follow through have been have we been keeping our word and promises have we been faithful To God, do we delight in his commands and seek to glorify him in all we do? Is that who you are? For most of us, probably most of the time. Sometimes. Are we obeying the Lord? Do we do what he has said to do? And not just in some universal sense, I look at the Ten Commandments or whatever, but in every instance, do we not realize that he is constantly, through the Holy Spirit, speaking to us to do the right thing, the next thing we do, do the right thing? That is the nature of the Holy Spirit. That is his abiding presence in our lives to keep moving us along from one right thing to the next right thing to the next right thing. No, he never leads us into temptation or into sin. Always do the next right thing and do the next right thing. Oh, you didn't do the right thing. Go back, confess, do the right thing. This is the pattern of the life of the believer. That is the battle. That is the war that we are in. Is that you? Are you in a fight? Are we obeying the Lord every time He speaks to us? Do we obey Him by loving others? How do we really love others? By accepting and tolerating their sin? or by preaching the gospel? Do we obey him through loving others the way that he has said to love others by sharing the life-giving, life-changing, life-saving, eternal gospel? Been faithful to God? Have we been faithful to our spouses? You know, on our wedding days we vowed certain things to our spouses. Are we fulfilling those vows? Well, it's different, Pastor Phil, because vows before God or to God and vows to that woman or that man, they're, they're different kinds of vows. No. You see, when you made those vows, you made those vows before God and many witnesses. Have you been upholding and fulfilling those vows that you made? What were those vows? To love her? To respect him? To provide for her? To submit to him? To sacrifice for her? To be devoted to him? Maybe you don't have a spouse. Maybe you have friends, loved ones, others that you Need to uphold your commitment to them? Are we fulfilling those vows? Have we been faithful to our families? Your kids get time with you, parent? You lead your family, and I would be speaking to the men. Men, do you lead your family in spiritual matters? Do you teach your children, your family to love and fear God? Do you provide for your family? Any Christian dad who doesn't lead his family in spiritual matters and doesn't provide for them in those ways and in other ways, the Bible says is worse than a pagan. That's a pretty serious warning. And that is the main problem in the church today. Men are not fulfilling their vows to God to lead. And I suppose one of the most frightening things about that is that Christian fathers will give an account before Christ for how they did. For what they did and for what they didn't do. There will be no excuse. Well I just you know, kind of just cruised through life and didn't really take those things serious. I'm sorry Lord I know I'm saved by your grace. Hold on a second pal. You didn't train and teach your children to fear and love me. You didn't Love your wife as Christ loves the church. You you didn't you didn't pray with your family. You didn't you didn't do these things. You forsook your yeah. You served and played guitar at the church all the time. I see that, but you didn't do your first ministry, which was to your family. You didn't fulfill those vows. Don't try to claim grace on me right now, pal. Yeah, I, I want that Father's Day warning to set deeply within me and you. I fall short. I know you Have we been faithful to our church family? Do we, (laughs) the the answer is obviously no, except for this group. Do we, are we faithful in our attendance? What a trap. What a tragedy it is that doing this and that and sports and car shows and whatever else it is, sleeping in, drinking late on Saturday night, what a tragedy it is that those things take precedence, that those things are more important than gathering with the bride. The forsaking of fatherly, Christian fatherly duties might be number one, but I'll tell you what number two is forsaking the assembly. I know that some of us have to work, that some of us get sick. I know that for a fact. I'm sick right now. I, I get it. But many in this church deliberately replace the assembly with other things you know what adrian rogers said about those people how can they possibly be saved how can anyone who is saved deliberately and habitually ditch the assembly hebrews 10:25 issues such a strong warning against that It says, do not forsake the assembly. And then a little farther down, it talks about don't forsake the faith. It's like the two are tethered together. Can anyone in this room testify right now that when they come to church pretty regularly, they pretty much walk in holiness pretty well and live a confessional life. They're on mission all that things. But when you skip and leave and go do other things, tell me that you backslide. Do you not? Is it, can anyone in here just raise a hand and say, when I'm not in church regularly, my life goes awry? And then they call and I need a counseling appointment. Well, my first bit of counseling for you is get your butt back in church. And then come for about two months and then we'll talk. The elders and I pray and pray and pray and pray. That many of our people will come back and stay. We need each other. Do we attend regularly? Do we serve regularly? It's not just about attending. You know what one of the tricks is? We come regularly, but we don't serve regularly or maybe give regularly. But then we say, I come regularly I'm being faithful there. Well, hold on a second. We're called to be faithful in a couple of areas here. Time, talent, treasure. Not just in time. Not just in talent serving. Not just in giving generously and graciously. See, don't get into that mindset of, well, I, I, hey, man, preach it, brother. I'm here regularly. I feel good about myself. But maybe you don't give. Well, hold on a second just kind of went, Burr. I don't serve, been faithful in those areas, in attendance, in service, in giving, how are we doing in these areas, faithfulness to God, faithfulness to our spouses, friends, loved ones, faithful to our families, faithful to our church family. How are you doing? Can we say, yes, without a doubt, I am like the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul made a vow and then traveled several hundred miles to fulfill it, and yet we can't get people to drive two miles to church. was committed he was a man of his word he upheld his vows are you is that who you are have we been faithful do we follow through And think of work in every area that your life touches not just the things that I've mentioned if you've been Unfaithful in any area, the Lord graciously, mercilessly invites you to confess your sins to Him. I haven't been faithful to my spouse. I haven't been faithful to my church. I haven't been faithful at work. I've been knocking off a little time early. That's what I've been doing. I got to confess that. What have you been doing? Confess before God. He graciously invites us to confess our sins to him. And the Bible says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins. And cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And what do we do? Repent. Confess. Get on track today. Don't go home and say, well, I'm going to really think about that, Pastor Phil. Maybe you've been faithful. Maybe you've been faithful. The Lord rejoices over you. Keep up the good work. a time of communion. be an opportunity for us to reflect on what we've heard, to confess and repent of any sin don't be mistaken. Repentance, confession sometimes require more than just an acknowledgement and a release of those things before God. Many times they require physical action. You may have to go to somebody and say, I've been a moron. I'm sorry. I've lied. I've cheated. I've stole. I've done this. I've done that. I have sinned against God in you. Forgive me. We reflect upon what we heard. We repent, confess any sin. We might need to take further action. We remember the finished work of Jesus Christ. You know, it's his finished work that drives all of this. It's why we do what we do. It's why we can do what we do. The only way that you can be reconciled or or any of these things out amongst those whom we do life with, is because of the reconciliation that God has brought to us through Christ Jesus. You see, we've been reconciled to God despite our sin. We remember what Christ did, and then we might be refreshed by his grace. And then I would say lastly that we would commit ourselves to, to obeying the Lord, fulfilling our vows. If we tell God we're gonna do something, let's do it. If we tell others we're gonna do something, let's do it. If we said this or that during our wedding marriage, do it. You've got a church family here, we depend on each other, we need each other. Fulfill your vows here. If you call this place your church home, Fulfill your vow and be here and serve and give. And if you know people who just can't seem to figure that out, maybe they're in your family or whatever, tell them. Tell them to listen to this sermon. You know what? I'll take the blame. Dom, you need to listen to what Pastor Phil said this week and then run. I'll take the heat. I don't care. This is all meant for our good. It's not meant for anyone's harm. You're harming yourself by not fulfilling what God has called you to do. I'm trying to throw you a lifeline. Lord, thanks for this time. We pray in the name of Jesus. Lord, bring to our minds, to the forefront of our minds, our sin. The areas where we have, whether it be deliberately or just incoherently, just forsaken what we're supposed to do. We we sin by our own choice and we sin when we're not even choosing to sin. Oh Lord, bring these sins before us that we might have contrite, broken hearts, confessing our sin before you. Restore us to yourself. Empower us and guide us and lead us to restore ourselves to others. May we remember during this time that it is your finished work on Calvary and through the tomb, through the resurrection, that we can do anything. We love you. We take these elements, may it be a a rich time of confession and worship. We pray this in Jesus' name.